So yesterday I, uh, I posted on Facebook, and you can see up on the screen, we are covering a lot of, uh, a lot of ground today. Um, so I, I posted on Facebook that we were going to be covering Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, and going through Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Uh, and a friend of mine from college, he said, hey man, you need to read Acts chapter 20, verse 9. So let me read that to you real quick. Um, this is uh, Paul, he's with, uh, with a group of people, and it says, um, on the, I'm going to start in verse 7. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was departing the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. <laughs> there were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. When he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. I was like... Well, gee, Chris, thanks a lot. <laughs> anyway, we, I, I promise you it won't be like that. Um, at least I hope not. We're, we're not in the third story. And uh, Zach, you're the only one that's uh, the size to fit in the windowsill. So if we could keep you out of the windows, I think we'll, we'll be okay. All right, but we are going to try to cover uh, a great deal of ground here today. Um, as you can see, with this, the message today is called Stephen Before the Sanhedrin. Uh, and it does cover the last part of Acts chapter 6 and all of chapter 7. Uh, so let's go ahead and we're going to jump into this. Um, in the first part of Acts chapter 6, which we looked at last week, there was this controversy in the church between uh, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And there was this controversy that one group uh, felt that for whatever reason, there, many different reasons came into this, that their, uh, that their people weren't being served the way the other group was. And, and so, uh, and, and when, the way we looked at it was, we looked at Satan had tried to destroy the church through persecution. Satan had tried to destroy the church by bringing sin into the church, and neither one of those had worked. So now he was going to try to pull the church apart by having some grumbling taking place. And he was going to try to split the church up over, over this controversy. And so the, the apostles, they got together and they said, listen, there's a lot of you. There's a lot of you. We've got, we need to be studying the scriptures. We need to be praying for you all. We really can't get involved with this right now. So here's what we want you to do, church. We want you to pick seven men. They listed out all of these different uh, characterization, or, uh, not characterizations, qualifications uh, for these guys. And they said, we want you to pick seven men, and they're the ones who are going to meet this need. And so they did. They, they got together, and they picked seven men. And one of those men was a man named Stephen. And Stephen was a, a Hellenistic Jew, which meant he was born a Jew, but he lived elsewhere and had kind of adapted to uh, the Greek culture. But he was so, so thought of by the church that they said, listen, if there's anybody who's going to meet this need, if there's anybody who's going to take care of it, Stephen is that guy. And so, um, so they, they, Stephen, and there was Philip, and there were some other guys who, forgive me, I don't remember their names off the top of my head, and we got to keep moving or else we are going to be here till midnight. Um, they came in, and they, and they met this need, and as a result, the word of God continued to spread throughout the city, and a lot of people became saved and became a part of the church. We're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 6, um, and we're going to take a look at, at Stephen and, and what kind of happened to him. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says this. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. I'm going to read some more, but let's pray real quick. 
Father God, I ask that you'd be with our time. I ask that you would uh, make us more like your son as a result of us being here this morning, Lord. Uh, I ask that you would open our eyes, let the Holy Spirit fill us as we examine your word so that we're able to understand the spiritual truths that are here. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen. All right, so what we see is we see Stephen. Stephen is full of grace and truth, and he's out doing, uh, doing signs and wonders. And uh, from, from doing the different readings that I did, Simon, or not Simon, Stephen wasn't doing, when he says he was doing signs and wonders, he wasn't just doing magic tricks. He wasn't like, hey, pick a card, you know, that kind of thing. It was more, he was going out and he was healing people and he was helping things. Sometimes when, uh, particularly in, in, in this context, when, when someone is so in tune with the spirit, they are given skills above and beyond what normal people get in order to further the gospel. All right? and, and this took place you know, particularly in here to establish the authority of what was happening. Now, as, as is typically the case, and we even see this in our world today, when someone starts doing good, but it goes counter to what the prevailing knowledge is, people are going to try to stop that. Right? If you're doing, it doesn't matter what good you're doing, if you're doing something that goes against what culture says you're supposed to be doing, they're going to do everything they can to shut you down. We looked at that a few weeks ago when I told you the stories about the, uh, about the, uh, the, the foster care uh, facilities and places like that uh, and different places around the country that were shut down because they were trying to hold to a biblical view and, and the culture said, no, you can't do that. You've got to do it exactly the way we are going to do it, or we're going to shut you down. And a number of them got shut down. And that's what, that's what was happening here with Stephen. Stephen was going out, and he was helping people. But there were synagogues, particularly the Freedmen synagogues, who couldn't stand for that. They, they didn't want any of that happening. Acts chapter 6, verse 9 says this, Opposition arose, however, from some of the members of the Freedmen synagogue, composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. Now, in, this, in, in Jewish culture at this time, the synagogue was, was a, a very important place. And what would often happen is they would go there for worship, but it was also kind of the social center of that community. And so people would gather there, kind of think of it as almost like a country club, um, Except without the, the groundhogs that pop up out and Bill Murray trying to hit him with golf. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Tina said I couldn't do my Scooby-Doo reference today, so I'm trying to pepper it with other things. Um, they would gather and they would have these conversations and they would talk about the events of the day. They'd talk about events that were going on. And a lot of times, as, as happens, those conversations would turn to discussions of religion and theology. And so what the disciples would do, and, and people in the church, they would still continue to go as long as they were allowed to. They would go to the synagogues, and they would join these conversations as an attempt to share the gospel and try to persuade people to, to, to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what was happening when Stephen came under fire from the members of these synagogues. Right? They, they, they were trying to argue with Stephen, and they were trying to show him that he was wrong. And when that didn't work, they went to a plan B. And their plan B was, okay, if you're not going to agree with us, then we're going to get you into trouble, and this is how we're going to do it. Verse 10 says this, 
but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Stephen was so full of the Holy Spirit that there was no way that they could overcome their arguments. So verse 11 says this, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witness who said, This man never stops speaking against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So when they couldn't, get, when they couldn't overcome his arguments, they went out and they bribed some people to tell lies about him. I don't know if you've ever had somebody tell a lie about you. It's not fun. Right? It is one of the worst feelings to know that somebody you trusted is out telling lies about you. All right? I, 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 I'm just straight up honest. I've had people in this church who, whether they knew it or not, have, have said things that were not true about me. And I got to tell you, it hurt. It was not a fun experience by any stretch of the imagination. Thankfully, we were able to work it out before I got pulled before the Sanhedrin. Right? That, would have, that would have been a, a, a bad thing. Um, but one of the things that the scripture tells us, one of the things that they were accusing Je- or, uh, Jesus, um, I got him in my notes here too. Um, one of the things they were accusing Stephen of is they were accusing him of blasphemy against the temple. In Jewish culture, particularly for the religious leaders, the temple was the end-all, be-all of everything. It was, it was the, 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 they almost worshipped it. Right? It, was, it was this thing. So to say that you're going to tear down the temple, this was the same thing that got Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders because they misunderstood what he was talking about when he said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. That's what, that's what got him in trouble with the religious leaders. They're saying Stephen said the same thing. They worshipped the temple and they also worshipped the law. And so what happened was, even though that the temple was built to worship God, they lost sight of that and started worshiping the tool instead of worshiping the God that it was built for. And the same thing can happen today. The same thing can happen today is if we're not careful, the things that we build to bring us into communion with God can become the objects of our worship instead. I've seen this happen. The, the, the environment that, uh, that a lot of the people that I knew growing up in, they were King James only people. Right? I still have friends that are King James only. And if you say anything against or suggest that you might use a Bible other than the King James version of the Bible, they treat you as if you're some kind of apostate. There's no way that you could be, right? They worship it. The Bible was written to let us know about God, to bring us in communion with God, but it's become the object of worship. The same thing can happen. A church building can become an object of worship. A pulpit can become an object of worship. Anything, anytime we worship something that's, that's meant to bring us closer to God, as God, that becomes an issue. And that's what was happening here. And so in the midst of all of this, Stephen is arrested and he's dragged before the Sanhedrin. Right? This is the third time that the Sanhedrin seems to be, be going here. And so that brings us to our second point. After, after Stephen is arrested... 
Um, the second thing we see is Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin. Now, um, Acts chapter 7, there are 60 verses in it. I'm not going to read all 60 of them, okay? Um, but I do, I do want to read, read a couple of them. Beginning in verse 7, beginning in verse 7, it says this. Are, I'm sorry, beginning in Acts 7 verse 1, there we go. Are these things true, the high priest asked. You would think by this point that the high priest would realize that if he asks that question, he should know what's about to happen. Because he said the same thing to Peter, and Peter ripped into a sermon that just laid it out for them. And then the second time Peter was arrested, he asked Peter about it, and what did Peter do? He laid out a sermon. And so now the third time, you would think by this point, uh-oh, if I ask this question, I know what's going to happen. He looks at Stephen and goes, are these things true? Now, Stephen, Stephen's standing there, and instead of putting a defense for his life or trying to plead that they be merciful to him, instead he goes, well, yeah, yeah. And, and instead of doing those things, he just opens up and he breaks out into a sermon for these people. Um, and like I said, at this point, you would think that that's what happened. But so what, Pete, what Stephen proceeds to do, uh, verses 1 through 53, uh, and, and, I, and I suggest, or verse 2 through 53, I suggest you go back and read it later. It's a fantastic history of what the Jewish people experienced from the time that God, uh, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your country and I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Stephen then proceeds to go through and describes their shared history. And one of the things that he does throughout this is even though he's a Hellenistic Jew, and Hellenistic Jews were kind of looked down upon by the Hebraic Jews because they had adopted Greek culture, and the, the Greek culture was frowned upon by, by the Hebraic Jews who lived in Palestine and had grown up entirely as very strict conservative Jewish people. Even though he was a Hellenistic Jew, he addressed the Sanhedrin as brothers and fathers. He, what he was doing was he was trying to establish common ground with the people that were listening to him. And so beginning with Abraham, Stephen proceeds to walk his listeners through their common history as Jews. He preaches about the covenant given to God or given to Abraham by God, the story of God's protection and providence in Joseph, which we see at the, at the end of the book of Genesis, and the rejection of Moses by the people of Israel. So if you know all of that, that Jewish history, Abraham was there and he was told he was going to be the father of a great nation. He had um, Isaac and then Isaac had Jacob and Jacob's wives had 12 sons and they became the, the fathers of the tribe, uh, of the tribe of Israel. And through a, a whole series of events, uh, God led Joseph, one of Jacob's children, to be held captive in Israel and it's an example of God's sovereignty and providence because at that point there was a famine in the land. And if God put Joseph into, into Egypt so as to protect many people over the course of that because Joseph put a number of things into place that protected a good portion of the world from this famine that took place. But as things went on, um, and we're not going to dive too much into it, but uh, the, the Egyptian people decided to uh, oppress the, uh, the, Is the children of Israel, and they made them them slaves, made the children of Israel their slaves. There we go. 
and God sent a deliverer in Moses. And Moses led the children of Israel out through a, a number of uh, signs and miracles that took place. But while they were wandering through the desert, rather than listen to Moses, the children of Israel constantly grumbled against Moses. They were constantly rejecting him as their leader, saying, who put you in charge over me? And, and to his, to his uh, benefit, or um, for credit, thank you, to his credit, Moses never looked at him and went, God, because that would have been a mic drop moment right there. Who put you in charge? God did. What, what, what you going to say? Right. And so it continued on from there. Um, Stephen also addresses the fact that Israel's peak as a kingdom took place under the reign of their third king, Solomon. That was when Israel's kingdom was at its peak and everything went downhill from there. So they had King Saul, they had King David, they had King Solomon. King Solomon built this incredible nation. And unfortunately, because of his sin, it got ripped apart. It was Solomon, the third king of Israel, who was the one who built the temple. Now, prior to that, God's people had worshipped in a tabernacle that had been built during the, uh, the time of Moses, during their wandering in the desert. And throughout all of this, throughout all of the things that Stephen is saying, he keeps referring to the people he's talking about as our ancestors. So what he's saying is throughout all of this, we are all tied together. He's trying to build common ground with his listeners. However, when we get to Acts 7, verse 49, um, it, the sermon starts to take a very decidedly different tone. So let me, let me read here. Uh, Acts 7, verse 49, it says this. Heaven is my throne, and the earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? What, um, what Stephen is doing here, he's quoting uh, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. And what he's saying to the Sanhedrin is, God doesn't need a temple. This temple that you're worshiping, God doesn't need it because he has everything. He created everything. So the fact that you're putting so much worship into this temple, you're wrong because you've taken your eyes off of God Almighty. And then continuing on, Acts 7, 51, this is where he really drives home his point. He says this, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels and yet have not kept it. So up until we get to verse 51, Stephen is saying, it's us. It's, it, th we're talking about you and me. But when he gets there, he goes, no, this is on you guys, right? You are the ones who, when Jesus Christ came, you should have known that he was the Messiah, and you are the ones who hung him on that tree, and you are the ones who are responsible for his death. Up until then, he was trying to build common ground. When he gets to this point, he says, everything that has happened is your fault, right? He's following Peter's, you can tell he's been listening to Peter, because if you remember, every time that Peter preaches... Peter preached that God sent Jesus to earth. You all killed him, but God brought him back to, back to life, and he's now sitting at the right hand of God. 
That's exactly the same model that Stephen is following here. Stephen, is telling, Stephen was telling the religious leaders that they were without excuse when it came to their sins and the death of Jesus Christ. And even though they had seen the tragedies that made up so much of their history, that was a big part of being a religious leader, was knowing the history of, of the Jewish people. They were continuing in the same footsteps of their apostate ancestors. They had the law, but they continued to reject it and disobey it. They knew what they were supposed to be doing. They, they had it all laid out in front of them, and yet they chose not to follow it. That brings us to point three, and this will probably be my longest one. Point three, we'll pick up here at the, the last uh, five or six verses, is Stephen is murdered for his faith. And you they really cannot look at this without saying that, yes, Stephen was murdered for his faith. Let me read. I'm going to just read down through the end of the chapter. Actually, let me read uh, 54 through 56. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, when, he, when, when Stephen did this, his sermon did exactly what it was intended to do. It convicted the Sanhedrin of their sin. Because if, if, in verse 54, it tells us that they became enraged. That Greek word, the, 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 the meaning behind that Greek word means they were cut into two pieces. It cut straight through them. They were so angry. It is a, it is a violent reaction. When, when, when it talks about um, being enraged, and I think some, some translations might say furious, right? this is a violent reaction to what, it, what is going on here. Um, and when we are presented with our sin, we can have two different reactions. One, we can experience godly sorrow, and we can truly understand that, yes, what I did was wrong, and we can confess it to God, or we can rebel against it and become angry. 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 7, verse 10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. When the Sanhedrin were confronted with their sin, they had two choices. They could confess their sin and repent of it, and they've had multiple opportunities. I think, I think that's why God kept having the apostles uh, arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin is because he wanted them to be confronted with their sins so that they would confess of it. But worldly grief produces death. And not only did they become enraged, uh, Acts 7.54 also tells us that they gnashed their teeth at him. Their rebellion against their conviction of sin was so great that they had a violent reaction to it. All right. I, I, I don't know that in my own life, I don't know that I've ever experienced something where I was so angry that, that I had a violent reaction to it. I'm sure that I have. I'm sure that um, I, I, if I think hard, back hard enough, I'm, I'm sure that there are opportunities. I know that there are some of you in here who may have had those experiences. I don't know what that's like. But that's what the, the Sanhedrin was experiencing right now. Their rebellion against their conviction was, uh, of sin was so great that they had this violent reaction. They were ready to harm Stephen. Now, if you remember uh, a, a few chapters back, there was a guy named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel said, look, we need to leave these people alone. All right, because it turns out if, if this is nothing, 
then it's just going to fall away. But if it's something, if there's something behind it, you're going to be going up against God. You're going to find yourself in a situation you don't want to find yourself in. At this point, the Sanhedrin had pretty much sealed the deal for themselves because they were ready to harm Stephen. And part of that, I think part of the reason was, um, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead of myself. His words laid them, laid them open and they didn't like what they were seeing. They were given a glimpse of who they were and what their sin had done and they didn't like it. They, Stephen, in, in verse uh, 56, he is then given a glimpse into heaven. And he says this, he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. And this is what really set the Sanhedrin off because what it did was it reminded them of similar words that Jesus had said to them not too long in the distant past. He said, you have said it, Jesus told him. This is Matthew 26, 64. You have said it, Jesus told him, but I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, that's the first thing. Second, it was yet another reminder to the Sanhedrin that Jesus was alive and that the religious leaders were the ones who had rejected him and were responsible for his death. Those, those are the things that are going down. And now, there's one really interesting point, if I can do a little aside here. Every time we see Jesus, every time we get a glimpse of Jesus or hear about what Jesus is doing right now, Jesus is always sitting at the right hand of the throne. But in this particular verse, what does it say? It said he was standing. And what that is, is that's a reminder to us that in our darkest moments, Jesus is watching over us. He's not just sitting back, letting things happen. Jesus is right there. Jesus knew what was about to happen to Stephen. And he was getting up out of his chair. He was standing waiting so he could welcome his servant into the kingdom. I think it's a beautiful picture of what's going on there. Uh, let's continue. When Stephen said this, when Stephen said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand, that was the last straw for the, uh, for the Sanhedrin. They absolutely lost their minds. They grabbed Stephen and dragged him out of the city. Like forcibly, as a mob, the, these People who were supposed to be upstanding, they grabbed him and they dragged him out of the city. They took off their robes, they stripped down, and they began to stone Stephen. Now, in my head, I think, you know, as I'm thinking of a stoning, I'm thinking like they hit him with two or three rocks and he was dead. Stoning was the traditional means of execution in Israel, but it was slow and it was agonizing. I don't know if you've ever been hit with a rock. It doesn't feel good. All right? It does not feel good at all. And when you stone somebody, it doesn't take one or two rocks and you're done with the job. This is you, you have to be committed to what you are doing. And that was the point that the Sanhedrin had gotten at, that they were willing to, to take this man outside of the city and completely stone him. They were willing to do anything to rid themselves of the conviction that they were experiencing. They... Stephen had gotten so, had exposed their sin to the place, and they had to make a choice as to what they were going to do about their sin. And they decided that rather than confess their sin and repent of it, that they were going to do anything in their means to get rid of that, to just get rid of that, what they were feeling. The conviction of their sin was so severe that they were willing to lay aside their long-standing rules and tradition. In the Sanhedrin, they had all of these different rules that they would follow. 
And when it came to a capital punishment sentence, they had all of these different uh, checks and balances that they would go through in order to make sure that they didn't execute someone who didn't need to be executed. One of those things was that the Sanhedrin, you could have a unanimous vote to acquit somebody. You could not have a unanimous vote to execute somebody. Another thing that they had to do was they had to pair up. They had to, they had to find a partner, more or less, and using my third grade speak, find a partner. And they would sit and they would go over the case and they would spend all night going over the case, looking at all the points and counterpoints, the defense and, and the prosecution, look at all of that. And then they would come back the next day after they had time to mull it over and they would vote. And what they would do is they would take the youngest member and he would vote first. And they would go all the way to the oldest member so that way the youngest member wasn't swayed by someone who had a little bit more clout than he was. They took all of these things and just threw them out the window. They were so wanting to be done with this man who had laid their sin before him that they took all of their rules and said, you know what, we're not going to follow any of them. They dragged him outside of the city and began to pelt him with massive stones. All of this was going on. To nearly everyone's amazement, though, to nearly everyone's amazement, Stephen pleaded with God not to lay the sin on these people. Let me read that verse to you. In verse, uh, in verse 57, it says, They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's important. We'll come back to that later. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. After saying this, he died. Some of your translations may say, he fell asleep. In the midst of, in, in the midst of being, being killed in one of the most gruesome ways possible, Stephen's, uh, Stephen's thought was not on saving his life. Stephen's thought was on saving the lives of the one of the, of the individuals who were responsible for his death. Imagine the transformation that has to take place in somebody's life to where when you are on the verge of being, being murdered and the, person who, the people who are responsible for your murder, your thought is making sure that this sin is not held against them because you want their soul to be saved. That only happens through Jesus Christ. That type of transformation only takes place when Jesus Christ has gotten a hold of your heart and, and completely conformed you to the gospel. Now, we need to leave this, as we, as we wrap up here, we need to leave this with two things. First, when we are confronted by those who oppose us, the proper and righteous response is to be full of grace. In everything that we see from Stephen, when he was, when he was falsely accused, when he was arrested, all of those things, everything that he did was full of grace, was, was, was full of grace. Um, he was lied about and he was betrayed. As a Hellenistic Jew, as I pointed out, he was not particularly popular outside of the, the Christian church. Uh, he was not, um, but it wasn't the Hebraic Jews that betrayed him. It was people of his own culture were the ones that dragged him before the Sanhedrin. It was the, they were the ones who turned him over. In spite of all this, there is no record that Stephen spoke up or tried to defend himself. In fact, 
it states that he was full of the Holy Spirit. The only time that Stephen spoke any words that might be considered abrasive is when he called the, the Sanhedrin stiff-necked and having uncircumcised ears and hearts. And what he was trying to do there was he was trying to point out to them that they were sinners and that they needed a savior. And so he was trying to drive that point home. His words were not spoken in anger, but they were spoken out of love for a man, spoken out of love for the men who would kill him shortly. Again, that only happens through Jesus Christ. You only have that attitude when you are completely caught up with Jesus Christ. We live in a world where it is very easy to get upset. Like sometimes I'll joke where I'll wake up in the morning and I'll go, all right, world, what are we upset about this morning, right? Everybody is upset about something all of the time. If you don't believe me, get a Facebook account, okay? If you don't believe me, get a Facebook account. Everybody, every little thing people are upset about. I was actually, speaking of that, I was watching a video on Facebook the other day, and there was, uh, he calls himself a pastor. I don't want to question whether he is or not. But he had a, a, a video that uh, apparently Facebook labeled him as dangerous. Okay, I, I, I don't know why they labeled him as dangerous, but they labeled him as dangerous. And he went on for about four or five minutes just bashing Facebook and the people of Facebook. And his video, and sadly, I watched the majority of it, his video was so full of, of vitriol and anger and all of these things that I'm thinking, dude, you said you're a pastor, and yet you're trying to convince people to come over to your side. Let's think about what you're doing here, right? How are you going to win some? You know, I've heard the saying, um, you win more, more uh, you get more flies with uh, honey than with vinegar. I don't really know why you want flies. I mean, I guess if you want them, there's enough of them on the uh, back windowsill there from time to time. None back there today? Nice. All right. Good, good, good. All right. But Colossians 4, chapter 6 says this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. When we're confronted, when we're offended, it's easy to defend ourselves. It's easy to put on our armor and go to war with people, right? That's, that's one of the things that Facebook is good for. You can go to war with somebody and never even have to come in contact with them. You can say all kinds of nasty stuff to people and never have to worry about there being any repercussions. But the Bible tells us that our speech needs to be seasoned with salt, full of grace, because that's how we're going to win people. The second thing is that we need to examine the way each of us deals with conviction. When faced with the reality of our sins, we have two choices. We can confess and repent of our sins, or we can rebel against that conviction. And sadly, there are so many people, when they sit in church, they hear their sins laid before them, or the Holy Spirit begins to convict them. And what do they do? They run from that conviction. They run from it because it's so much easier to run away from it than it is to come and humble yourself and deal with that. John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9 says this. Oh, actually, let me read one other thing for you. I truly believe that conviction of sin is a gift from the Holy Spirit. I truly, truly believe that, that when you are convicted of your sin, it is the Holy Spirit working on you, and it is a gift. You should not reject that. John 16, 8 and 9 says this, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me. If you are a believer, if you are, if you are a believer, that conviction that you might feel is to restore your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Your sins are already forgiven and you cannot lose your salvation. Once you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that, can, that will not be taken away from you. But your relationship with Jesus is wholly dependent on whether or not you are daily killing and confessing your sin. Right? My wife and I, I, I'd like to think we have a good relationship. All right? I, I, I do. I, I love my wife dearly, and, and I'm trusting that she loves me. But if I am constantly doing things, if I am constantly leaving dirty socks on the floor or doing things that I know are, are, are against what she wants, are we going to have a good relationship? We're not. Okay? And, I, and I realize that's a very simple illustration. The same thing happens between us and Jesus Christ. When we are constantly, when we are constantly sinning, our relationship with Jesus gets muddied. It gets murky. And when we are convicted of our sin and called to confess that, when we lay down our sins at Jesus' feet, even though they've already been forgiven, they've already been forgiven, but when we confess them and lay them down at Jesus' feet, it puts us back into a right relationship with him in order that we can fully experience the life that he wants to give us. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're here or you're watching via Facebook, um, the conviction of sin is the Spirit's way of drawing you to him. Your response determines your eternity. When you are, if you are not a believer and you feel that conviction, and I think that there, I, I, I can honestly say I believe that there, if, if you're a believer here today, there was a day where you were not a believer and you felt the Holy Spirit's conviction on your life. And that was him drawing you to him. And if you are a believer, then you made the decision to come before him, humble yourself, and ask for forgiveness and ask for salvation. That was the Holy Spirit's doing. He drew you to him. The Sanhedrin was convicted of their sins, and their reaction was to continue in their sins. They had, they had multiple opportunities to lay their sins down, to ask for forgiveness of them, and yet they continued in their sins. Only, they were respons- only now they were responsible for the deaths of two men instead of just Jesus, because now they're responsible for the death of Stephen. King David, one of, one of Israel's kings, he was their second king, probably their greatest king they ever had, was also responsible for the death of a man, one of his best friends. And when he was confronted with that sin, I want to, I want to show you uh, what his reaction was. This was his response. Psalm 51, 1 through 10. And I'm not, going to read all, I'm not going to read the entire psalm, but let me read this part. It says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Which if you know the story as to why he's writing this, he killed a man, he stole his wife, he, he lied and did all of these things. But yet when, when confronted with it, David realized that his sin was against God alone. I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful, from, I was sinful when my mo- mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear your let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. You can yield to the Spirit's calling or you can resist the Holy Spirit as, just like the Sanhedrin did. Your eternal destiny hangs on that decision. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord, even though it is a, a, a sad, a sad uh, event in the history of the church, Lord. It is um, the first martyr. But as we're going to see as we move forward next week, that this was actually a pivotal moment in the history of the church as we begin a new chapter uh, in the church going forward. But Father, uh, what I want to focus on this morning is, Lord, I pray that for those of us that are convicted of sin, and I, I realize that I may not have, have laid out um, specific sins for us to be convicted of, but I know that the Holy Spirit has been moving uh, in the sermon this morning. And Lord, I know that there are people who are holding on to anger. There are people who are holding on to to bitterness, there are people who are hanging on to pride or lust or greed or any of those things. And Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit was moving and that they were convicted and that with that conviction, uh, right there in their seats or down here on the altar, they're going to lay that down at your feet and move forward because in doing so, it's what we need to restore our relationship with you. And Father, I don't know if there are any unbelievers here with me today or watching us via Facebook or later on. But Lord, if there is anyone here today who has never put their faith and trust in you, Lord, I pray that through, through the words that we looked at from your scripture, not the words that I said, but what, what the scripture has to say, that they would be convicted of their sin and understand that they need a savior, that there is nothing that they can do of their own that will take them from the brokenness that they're finding themselves in, that trying to fix that brokenness is only going to lead to more brokenness. But by trusting, repenting, and uh, turning away from their sins and trusting in your son Jesus and what he did on the cross, uh, his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, that they can have a brand new heart. They can have the heart of flesh given to them and that heart of stone removed. Lord, if there's any, any conviction that is taking place, Lord, I know that as I was preparing this, there were things that I was confessing to you. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of, of, of cleansing, and today would be a day of, of confession, and that we would leave here whiter than snow as a result. Lord, we ask all of this in your beautiful name. Amen.